Hey friends, you know I love a good story, especially when it's a God story that equips, inspires, and encourages us in our walk with the Lord. I'm your host, Jody Kiracosta, ministry leader at Somebody Cares American International, author and traveler on this journey of faith. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the Her God Story podcast. I was reading Psalm 37 recently, and verse 23 seemed to jump off the page. The New Living Translation reads, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Of course, I've read that scripture many times, but this time I realized something I had not before. God actually delights in every detail of our lives. I know that's what the verse says, but have you ever really thought about it? It's truly quite amazing. My guest, Jan Tennyson, has seen that truth active in her life in remarkable ways. 36 years ago, she founded and still serves as president of the Dare to Dream Children's Foundation. Jan has had some amazing adventures that God has taken her on and has been involved in life-changing ministries that he's opened up to her. She's the recipient of the 2007 Governor's Lone Star Achievement Award in the state of Texas, one of the 2014 Women of Achievement honored by the Miss Texas pageant, and recently a 2023 World Trumpet International Honor Award for recognition for her years of visionary guidance, exceptional leadership, and unconditional commitment and love for humanity, among many other awards. I can't list them all. We'd be here all day. Uh, But Jan has risen from a foster child to a successful ministry leader and author, and I am very honored to have her as my guest. Welcome, Jan. I'm delighted to be here, and I really am so excited about this opportunity. Well, Jan, you've written a book about your life called She Dares to Dream, and you titled the first section, Humble Beginnings. Tell us about your early years. What happened to your family and to you? Well, I was born in New York City in the 40s uh, to a mom and a dad who must have had a very good intentions. And I say that because each child that they had were baptized in the Catholic Church at a very early age. So that tells me that they did have some kind of a spiritual connection. However, because I was placed in the New York Foundling Home as an infant, I know very little about their lives. Um, my brother and sister were born in the height of depression, and it was very hard days. Jobs and money were very scarce. And my oldest brother, Joe, recalled that, that our dad was lined up on the waterfront, hoping to be chosen as a longshoreman, loading crates and tankers. And I've also heard that he was a milkman, and some people out there don't even know what that is, but it's where they would have carts go by your house, and they, those who could afford it would get a fresh bottle of milk at their doorstep. My mom was born to a family in Staten Island. And um, what was really interesting is that my dad, I found out that my dad and his his three siblings were placed in Mount Loretto Orphanage, which happens to be in Staten Island. And um, he, you know, they got married, they had four children, and he died when I was 14. Because of the storms of life, both of them became alcoholics and they were neglecting their children. And in the beginning of my book, I have a story which uh, could be the opening of a movie. And it's two little children, about six and eight years old, were walking along the docks of New York City looking and asking people in the middle of the night, could you tell us where our father is? Do you know my dad? And eventually they were picked up by the police. 
and the police took them to the station, gave them some ice cream cones to kind of dry their tears. And they said, well, where do you live? Do you have any idea where you live? And so my brother gave them the address and the police went to a tenement apartment in, in Manhattan. And there they found this baby who was just in diapers and crying. And that was me. And because of the fact that um, they could see that there was neglect involved, they they transported me because I was just an infant. I was about three months old. And they took me to the New York Foundling Home. And that was a place run by the Sisters of Mercy, who um, actually had baskets outside the, uh, the stone building on 68th Street in New York, where mothers, instead of putting their baby in a garbage and they would put the baby in a basket and the nuns would come and feed it. And you could live there until you were about two years old, but then you had to go out into the foster care system. So I was placed in the New York foster care system, but it was through the New York Foundling Home. So we still had to go there for our dentist appointments and our checkups and everything like that, which was a blessing. So I think God was working in my life even back then. because And because of the fact that my my parents both were alcoholics, and they were in and out of Bellevue, Mac, Bellevue Hospital for alcoholism. You know, there's a lot of abuse that's involved, and I have no idea what that looked like for my brother and sister, but they were put in a children's shelter because they were older. So you grew up entirely in foster care, um, and so you really know the pain of rejection, the, the disappointment of unmet longings. Share some of what you experienced, but really also, as you mentioned earlier, how God cared for and guided you even long before you really even knew him. Right. Well, you know, when I would, when I think about it, and I was thinking about it through getting ready for this podcast of all the separation that I've had, when I think about it, I was separated from my birth mother as an infant. Um, I went to the founding home and was there uh, with the nuns until I was two years old, and then they took me out of that loving situation and then they put me with an older couple and I was with them for two years and they really did love me because I they used to write to me in my uh, second foster home and I used to because the reason that I was taken from that loving couple was because after a certain age you couldn't sleep in in the same room even in the crib with the parents or the foster parents just because it was they had a tiny house and so they didn't have another bedroom so they took me out of that home again so there's another time in your life that you're interrupted and was placed actually in another foster home where my brothers and sisters were now I considered that very a blessing um ask my brothers and they'll say no <laughs> they, they because I became like the second favorite in that particular home and um, in that home, I had, uh, we must have had eight to 10 kids from all over every, it was like a smorgasbord of all different nationalities. And, it, you know, but I was like the second favorite. There was one other favorite, which I won't go into right now, but I was like the second favorite because they could see potential in me, even though they didn't have, my foster parents didn't have a good education or anything like that. But my foster mother wanted to be a pianist. And she had a Baldwin baby grand piano in the living room. And um, she 
offered piano lessons to all of the children. She says, I will pay for piano lessons for you if you would like to take them. And everyone else turned their nose up at it, but I said, I'll go. <laughs> and so uh, she took me to the Brooklyn Conservatory of Music, which she knew that director, which was Mr. Bird Brady. And he, she introduced him to me and sat me down on the piano on the stage and and in at the Brooklyn Conservatory and they said, you know, just put your hands on the piano and I'll tell you what to do. They wanted to see how I could follow direction because I was very young. I was like six years old. And so after about 10 minutes with the director, he said, I would be delighted to have you as a student here at the conservatory, which again was a blessing. This nobody throwaway kid ends up um, taking lessons there at the conservatory and then ends up playing the piano in Carnegie Hall. Only God could make that happen. I can remember standing with the back, backstage, you know, as a tiny little girl, you know, with my hands sweating and a big audience outside and just coming to walk across the stage and they had to put me up on the stool because I was so little and then playing three of Bach's fugues which is not the most interesting music for me, but it was all classical music. And so uh, if I had to look at it today, I would have said, I wish I could have had some modern music. You know, now God has given me the gift of the gratitude for that, those lessons. And that's pulled me through a lot, that attitude of gratitude, which I had no had to be God given because there were a lot of things happening in our home where I couldn't be grateful you know, friends, there are orphans and widows all over the world who need to experience the tangible expression of God's love right now. Many have special needs that we as a community of women can meet together. Would you consider joining us with a special gift to help? Just go to hergodstory.org and click on the widow and orphan tab at the top of the page. Now, Jan, your foster parents, they also were Catholic and they took you to a Catholic church every week. So how did that impact your view of God? Well, um, I, I really believe that God was always tugging on my heart in some way or another. Um, it was real interesting that we, we lived three doors away. We moved from Brooklyn to Bayside, Queens, and my foster mother bought a large home that was just three doors away from Sacred Heart School. And the church was just across the street, was being built across the street. They had it in the gymnasium to start, like lots of churches do. But um, I can remember one one incident that I know it had to be God because um, we were very dedicated to Mother Mary. And um, in the month of May, they would have a procession in church where all the little girls would dress up in white dresses like little brides, and they would crown Mary as Queen of the May. And I remember so well the song, Oh Mary, We Crown Thee with Blossoms Today. And um, so how they picked the girl who was going to crown Mary, uh, the nuns in a certain class would pass a basket around to all of the girls, and there were pieces of paper in there. And only one of them had the name of Mary. Well... As God would have it, three years in a row, I picked the name of Mary. And I thought that was quite significant because I would, you know, again, go up there and place that crown on her head and and just feel like I was chosen. You know, it was it still brings tears to my eyes when I think of it. 
but I really think that God was calling me then. Mm. He was letting you know that he saw you in the midst of what was going on in your life. Right. Right. I, I'd leave that and then I'd go back across the street to my house and I'd go from like a stairway to heaven into, you know, a really difficult situation because my my siblings were jealous of me because I would go and play at concerts and I would get dressed up and they'd be staying home peeling potatoes. So they didn't like me very much. And I was always feeling different. Even in um, grammar school, you know, we had these funny little haircuts and and we we had clothes, you know, it was all hand-me-downs, but I understand that when you've got so many children, I mean, you don't all need to wear this brand new clothes. So I think that um, my foster parents were, especially my foster mother, she was very frugal in her choices as far as what she did with us. I got to volunteer at the rectory and the pastor of the uh, church wanted to actually send me to Catholic high school. My foster mother refused. She said, no, she's going to public school just like the rest of them. And so um, I found that I, I was very close to the church, but I really didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. And I knew, um, in fact, when I was 17, I wrote a letter to the Mary Knoll nuns. And they are an order of nuns that go around the world and into the jungles and, and, and serve children and feed them and clothe them and and um, and love them and teach them about the love of God. Well, I thought that was a great thing to do. So I got a book from the Mary Knowles, and um, I, I started diligently reading it. And I was reading it, and they said you had to be quiet, and you had to do you know all these things that were so holy. And I'm saying I'm not really that holy. <laughs> so I I wrote back to them and I said, well, it sounds interesting and I'd like to come and try it out. They said, no, we want to make sure that you're the called for this. And I turned out that I wasn't called to the nunnery, but I was called into ministry many, many years later. Yeah. God had put that in your heart, even as a young age, you didn't know exactly how he was going to bring that out, but it's really interesting how, when we look back on our lives, uh, you know, we see those little things. I remember when I was five years old, um, we were living in England and we had a woman who would come and help out around the house uh, because my mom had a lot of responsibilities outside of the house. And every week she would go to an orphanage to help care for children at the orphanage. And I remember at five years old, when I learned about this, I ran to my pantry and I just pulled out whatever I could, you know, some some crackers and, you know, a can of pop or something. And I gave it to her for the orphans because I just had that heart of compassion. This is before I knew the Lord as well. And years later, you know, when the Lord opened the door for me to start ministering to, you know, help children around the world, he reminded me of that. You know, he plants those desires in us at a young age that he brings to fulfillment at just the right time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Jan, when you graduated from high school, um, kind of foster care was over, and you pretty immediately began working in New York City, uh, and your desire for adventure was born there. Share about your life in the Big Apple and as a single woman. Right. Well, um, I had a girlfriend uh, not too far from where I lived, and she was, she was in my class, and she was going to go into the city to work. And I said, so you're going to go into New York City? And 
So I said, well, I, I want to do that too. So it turns out that I had the most boring job in the entire world. My first job was typing policy cards at an insurance company. And I did that for about six months. And I just said, this is not going to work. <laughs> so uh, I was dating a young man who had a, an uncle at Bank of America on, in Manhattan, in fact, right on Wall Street. And he said, I'm going to introduce you to him. And for some, I had some pretty good administrative skills. Even as a child, when I was at the rectory, I was doing administrative work. And then, and then when I went to the bank, they actually made me a floating secretary. So I would go from department to department to work from everything from the vice president to the mailroom, you know. And so I, I got some very good skills, even just from, from that particular job. But three years went by. And I didn't feel like I was challenged. I always wanted to keep learning and I was hungry for knowledge. And I said, you know, I want to get a job that's exciting and that the company who hires me will not be asking me for a fee to get hired, that they'll pay a fee to get me. And so I had that strategy even way back then of negotiation. And so that, again, was a gift, I think, from God. I never learned that. I never had anybody teach it to me. So it was God's gift. And so I, I went and I, um, I went and I found a job. They, they found a job for me at Thoroughbred Racing Associations. It was TRA, which was uh, J. Edgar Hoover's right-hand man, who was like the, the FBI of the racetracks. And so I got to be a, in an administrative a capacity there on 42nd Street up in the Daily News building, which was one of the biggest, one of the most wonderful buildings in New York. And in the lobby, I'll never forget the huge globe that looked to me like the biggest globe in the world with clocks around the world, around the globe of all over, all different nations. And I just could dare to dream way back then and say, I'm going to go to each one of those places someday. And no intentions particularly, but just kind of, you know, dreaming dream and uh, as it would have been a lot of them I did go to but um, I went from the, the bank was exciting place to work because on my lunch hour I could go and get on a ferry to Staten Island which is another borough of New York and go past the Statue of Liberty and I loved the lady I was very patriotic, and that was, again, just another gift given to me. I would just you know, almost want to stand there with my hand up when I would pass the statue, and I would end up in Long Island, and then the ferry would turn around and come. Little did I know that, um, not Long Island, Staten Island, little did I know that that's where my mother was born. That's where the orphanage was located, where my father and his siblings were put because they didn't have food for money or or anything to be able to live during the, de the depression days and there was an orphanage at the end of Staten Island that he went that he lived now I didn't ever know about that orphanage at the time that I was working there but when I decided that I wanted to write my book um, I said you know what I'm going to investigate everything I can to try to find out who are my grandparents where did my you know what what caused this what caused that and I did a lot of research and come to find out that um, that as children, that's where they grew up. And I said, someday I'm going to go there. Well, 
this was not going to be in the podcast, but I'll tell you any because I think it's really significant. I went to that um, orphanage. I went from Queens on buses and trains and, you know, and finally got on a long bus ride to the end of Staten Island wondering, who am I going to see? What am I going to learn? What's my story? Da, 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 da. And I, I, there I was, and I, I went into the chapel of Matt Loretto, and they said, oh, we're glad to see you, because I told them my father grew up there. They said, well, let us show you the pictures upstairs. And there were pictures upstairs all along the hallways of how it first started. And one of the pictures said, children without dreams. And it showed children that were in stairwells of New York and, you know, or, or on a subway station sleeping or things that I never even thought about. And I'm saying, this is the heritage. <laughs> this is where my father grew up. And that's who knows if that wasn't one of them in the picture. And so and so that kind of said to me, you know, that's when I went back to Dallas and I I started my organizations and called it Dare to Dream. So that's skipping ahead just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So you're in New York now and, um, and, and, and working for this uh, organization in the, in the building with the big um, globe. And so there I am. And there's three, there's three companies on that floor, the sixth floor. And there was the, the TRA, there was United Airlines, and there was IBM. And each one was significant in my life because I started at the TRA. I went to um, United Airlines because I said in the bathroom, everybody was talking about their trips and they all had great tans and they all looked so beautiful. And I said, oh, I think I might want to work for an airline one day. And I met the secretary, and she said, Jan, she says, we're going to be hiring reservation people, she says, maybe six months from now. I said, well, would you please come down and get me? Well, you know, so I can fill out an application. And she did that. I filled out the application, and I took the test. I thought they wanted me to be a pilot. (laughs) It was not easy. (laughs) It was not easy at all. And so I did, and I got the job. And within another six months, I became executive secretary for the manager of the of United Airlines. And then on Friday nights, we would go dancing the night away. We'd go to the Taft Hotel, dancing like crazy. And I met one of the men from IBM. And I actually had was going to marry him. And that was, uh, I was filling out my um, invitations to the wedding. And something in my spirit said, you're up the wrong trail, Jan. This is not the man you're supposed to marry. And again, something inside of me, and I just started crying as I was writing those invitations. And I, I'm obedient to my feelings. And my, and maybe it was the spirit, but I didn't know about the spirit really then. Know the Holy Spirit, but I said, this is not not right. So I, I did not marry him, and I, I decided to just. Um, take a leave of absence from my thoroughbred racing association. I said, I've had some uh, storms here and I, I need time off. So I said, I'll, I, I need six months. And I said, and if, if the place is still open, fine. Otherwise I'll just find another job. So I worked for United Airlines. Uh, I, wor- I was working for TRA for six months and then from, from nine to five and then from 
from 9 to 9.30, 5.30 till 9, I would work at the airlines, but I had no social life at all. I was, you know, I wasn't even enjoying trips because I was so tired. So I said I was going to take that leave of, but keep, I was going to take the leave of absence, but I was going to stay with the airlines. So I would work for the evening for the airlines, and then I would become a Kelly girl, which meant that you were a floating secretary in New York, and you could say yes or no to the job. And you could work at TV stations, modeling studios, um, exciting jobs, which I did, you know. And, yeah. And yeah, somewhere along the way, your longing for a family was was eventually correct. fulfilled. Correct. Um, when you met a, a dashing young man, fell in love, and you got married. Tell us a little about that right. part of your life and, 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 and what you thought about spiritual right. things during that season. Because you still no, didn't really I, I, know I, the Lord. I was still... I think probably my whole life I I was in church at some point, but we it was just that the, you must go to church or you're going to go to hell. <laughs> that was kind of the way it was. You yeah. know, I was is demanding thing. And Sundays, uh, you would find me in church on Sundays. And somebody wanted to go with me, great. If they didn't, but I would always try to find my way to a church on a Sunday. And um, I just um, uh, met a girl. She was English, and she said, let's have lunch on a particular Sunday before you have to go to work. And so I did, and we sat at a sidewalk cafe in Manhattan in Germantown, and um, and I had to go and make a telephone call to my sister, and that was when they had telephone booths way back, not cell phones. And I, um, I passed the bar and went into the phone booth and I was calling my sister and talking to her and it was a a glass phone booth so I could see her out and I just said Peggy there is a very handsome man sitting at the bar and he's reading a race car magazine he is just so good looking and I said he looks like Dr. Kildare on the television show and it was a very popular show at the time and I said I think I'm supposed to marry him I did. I, I told her. Wow. I told her you hadn't even met, hadn't met him yet. I said, I think, I think I'm supposed to marry him. She says, she says, well, let me know what come, what the outcome is. Well, eight months later, <laughs> I did marry him. But that, I won't go into all the wow. details, but anyway, it was, it was yeah. not, it was not, it was a hard marriage. I mean, I loved him with all my heart and I think he loved me the best way he knew how. But he was not a real, he was not really a, I can't say he wasn't a believer, but he never showed it. He never prayed. His mother was extraordinarily religious, as you might say. And from the Baptist world in Alabama, they had preachers in their home all the time, but the boys never got it. The girls did, but the boys never got it. And, um, and so I didn't think about, oh, well, we're unequally yoked. I didn't even know what those words meant. And so um, it was a struggle, and I did a lot by myself. And um, that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> I really wanted a partner. And after 17, we had two children, two wonderful children, Lisa and James, and I love them dearly. And I have four grandchildren now, and that's a blessing. So I did get the family. God did answer that phone, that, that desire of my heart. We left after 17 years of marriage, and I thought I was going to die. And I was very mad at God, and I just said, how could you, with my background, take this 
leader of my family. I wanted him to be the leader of my family. And we were really just on different world in different worlds. He came from a very poor background and didn't have big dreams like I did. He was very content to have a very simple life. And I didn't know that I didn't want a simple life. I mean, it's I could have been very happy if we if he didn't leave, I would stay there till the day I died. However, somehow we we did we had a short separation. I used to beg him to come back, beg him to come back. And he was into other other things, racing and lots of other things. And staying as a dedicated husband was not in the picture for him. And he was mm-hmm. he was 33 when I married him. So, you know, he didn't he wasn't a young man to just go there. He had aspirations of his own, which I was very excited about because he seemed to be a very exciting man. And yet we got married and he turned into a couch potato. And you weren't in New York anymore by the time, you know, 17 years ago. We had moved to Dallas and uh, we had a, we were right by Love Field, but he traveled all the time. He worked for multiple sclerosis and traveled all the time. And I had my little girl by that time. And I loved the fact we'd go over to Bachman Lake and feed the ducks. And that was content for me. But I said to myself, you know, I think we ought to have a house, you know. And so I went scooting around the neighborhood for, you know, I didn't, certainly didn't look at gated communities, but I looked at a house, little house in Richardson and I said, you know, the money we we're paying for rent, we could very easily be putting into here. And he just said to me, you're just never satisfied. And see, he just didn't have that, you know, he was satisfied in an apartment. And I really thought that that was not a good thing. And eventually when he saw the house, he said, yeah, he says, this is really nice. It had a fireplace, you know, no, no, wait a minute. The first one did not, but it was still a three bedroom home with a, with a uh, chain link fence. And I think I was happiest there with my two little babies and my husband and my, I had a Mustang convertible, which he didn't have a car. So he took my car. (laughs) So it was, it was interesting, but at the same time, I was happy, very happy. But then he left you, as you mentioned, and you said you were devastated. So what what did you do then after he left? I mean, you're here, single mom with two children. He was giving us some child support, which was fine. And at the same time, I knew that I I wanted to be able to do something. So I I became a um, a part time secretary. You know, I took a part time job and. And yet this tugging in my heart to be able to travel was, I was still with United. And and I, I skipped over something that before I, before I left uh, New York and had my babies, I decided to travel because I said, you know, it's my whole life has also been a wanderlust. And I said, I wanted to travel to different places. And so it was a situation where, I had a situation at United Airlines that said, well, we'll give you familiarization trips if you'll sign up first. And so I would sign up all the time to go on these trips. And so I would go to um, to the first the first place. Let's see, where did I go? To Paris. I had my first escargot in Paris, which I would never eat in the States. But I said, well, if I'm ever going to have it, I'm going to try it in Paris. In Turkey, it was like going back 100 years. And... Um, in Spain, I would see the bullfights on TV and said, I'm never going to a bullfight. And in Germany, I took a table, a cable car to the top of the Zugspitz 
which is the highest mountain in Germany. And with permission, this mountain paradise was turned into a concert hall. I played Malaganya on their grand piano in a very fancy dining room. And I was by myself. So it was it was easy for me to just say, would you be willing to let me use your baby grand? And they would say, oh, we'd be so happy. So it was really interesting that um, I got to do that. I said, I might marry a man that doesn't want to travel. And that's exactly what I did. So we have to be very careful what we say. I know, when you asked me about spiritual things, um, I was the happiest woman in my life when I walked down the aisle to marry Bill. We had the two children and we were married 17 years. Um, but the first scripture that I have in my autobiography, because I didn't really know scripture. We didn't read the Bible, you know, that we had priests and we didn't. So I didn't know anything about really memorizing scriptures. But the first scripture that's in my book says, I am the vine and you are the branches, but without me, he, no, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So spiritually, I was kind of in a nothing situation, even though God had favor on my life ever since I was a little girl. And my life changed after divorce, and uh, I didn't go to church at all. I was very mad at God. And um, then one day I was in... I was shop, shopping, and I was in Albertsons in Dallas, and I came out, and I met a lady who was Zig Ziglar's right-hand lady, and uh, she said to me, she said, uh, Jan, you talk all over the world. By this time, I was talking to youth in different places and different countries, refugee camps and everything, and she said, you have got to meet Jerry Johnston. He's going to be speaking at that church across the street. And I really think you should go hear his testimony. And I didn't even know what that word meant. (laughs) While you were still married or right after you got married, you were speaking all over the world? I had started Dare to Dream. This was after I was married. I had started Dare to Dream. Okay. You know, because um, I did other things, but at the same time, that was my, to give at-risk youth positive memories to be able to have something to hang on to that would give them some hope for a future. If that could happen for me, it could happen for them because God didn't love me any more than them. So that's, that's what I would tell them. So, you know, hearing this testimony of Jerry Johnson, he, I said, well, she wants this Catholic girl to go in that Baptist church. I will die and go to hell. Because that's the way, that's the way it was. I, that's, I said, but I said, you know what, but I'm a prayer lady. And I always was a prayer person. And I said, you know, well, God, if you really want me to hear this speaker, give me peace in my heart so that I will know next Wednesday, I'm going to be going to this Baptist church and listening to Jerry Johnston. So, but I'm going to do this. I, so I drove up and I parked my car and I, I, I walked in and there was a wonderful person that greeted me at the door and, and I just walked into the church and I said, oh my gosh, I never saw one so big. And I sat in the very last row, just in case anything was that I didn't like, I could just run out the door and nobody would see me. That was my strategy. Well, anyway, I sat in the back row and Jerry Johnson came out on the stage and he got a standing ovation. I said, well, maybe, uh, maybe this guy does have something to say. 
so I just sat there and I listened and he told his story of being a, um, a, a very wealthy kid from a, my father was a dentist and uh, he had everything that you could imagine, but he had gotten into drugs and porn and really bad stuff. And um, he couldn't even remember how he got home to his apartment one time. And he said, God, if you're real, show yourself to me because I'm, I'm going to kill myself tonight. I just, I don't want to live anymore. I'm, I'm miserable. And as it would be, God revealed himself to him that night. He got down on his knees and never did another drug at all from that night forward. And I never heard a story like that in my entire life. I'm saying, that's a, how in the world could that happen? You know, and so then he said, you know, and as life progressed for him, he's probably one of the most well-known speakers to youth around the nation or maybe around the world. He's, he's phenomenal. And he had two questions to ask that audience. And the first question was, um, those of you who know for sure that you're going to go to heaven, I want you to stand up right now. And I thought at the time that that was the most crazy question I've ever heard. How could you be sure? You can be good. You can do all these things. You can, you know, try to please God or whatever. But, you know, and you never know him. And so I just sat there with my arms closed. And he said, every, they got a standing ovation. You know, when they clapped, everybody was standing up. Not me. And he says, those of you who did not get up, he said, I want to ask you another question. He says, you may not know for sure that you're going to heaven, but you really, really want to. Would you please stand up? And I said, there's no way that I'm going to stand up. He says, I would like to invite you down to be able to say a prayer with me that will give you the blessed insurance to know that God is calling you and that he wants to be in your heart. And there was no way I was going to go down the longest aisle in the whole world, never. And so it was like a shovel picked up my body and paraded me down that long aisle with tears flowing down my eyes that I knew I was changing as I was walking. And it was just a divine experience that anybody listening, just know that God will call you if you'll let him. And you, when you can give your heart to Christ, everything changes. So I have had so I have so many stories that I can tell of how it changed and what was some of the instances that it changed. In your brokenness from your marriage, God was revealing himself to you in very deep ways. And one of them, tell a story about how you realized you were adopted by God. Well, um, I was at a Bible study and um, a lot of the people knew that I was from foster care, but they didn't know the story. And um, one of the gentlemen asked me, say, well, Jan, when were you adopted? And I said, oh, I was never adopted. I said, because of the fact that we had living parents, regardless of the fact that they weren't capable of raising us, um, we were not allowed to be adopted at that time. And so he looked at me and he says, Jan, he says, I need to tell you something. He says, you were adopted a long time ago by a heavenly father who's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you, and that will be with you your whole life once you let him come in your heart. 
And I still can cry when I think about that moment because it was very, very significant. And I saw so many things happen. And, and one of them, one of the stories that I, I think is very profound is that I had met a Top Gun fighter pilot who was watching some of the things I was doing and was amazed. And it was at a political rally of some kind that we were together. And um, he said, well, Jan, he says, the stories you tell me make me feel like I haven't even been in the war. And he'd been in three wars. And I said, he said, um, there's a convention in Phoenix, and it's the National Speakers Association, and I would like you to go to that. Well, I didn't have any money to go to a speaker's co- I didn't have any funds, anything. And and I said, I'll, I'll, I don't know that I said I'll pray about it at the time. I just said I'll think about it. And But now I pray about everything. <laughs> so... Um, I went, I, I just, I said, God, if you want me to go, you're going to have to make a way. And God will make a way when there seems to be no way. And I was in my home, walking down my hallway to a bookshelf. I have no idea what, which book or why I picked that book out. But in it, I opened it and there was three $100 bills, which was exactly the fare that I needed to get to Arizona. And I had put those $300 in there for a rainy day or sunny day or whatever, and totally forgot about them. Never even remembered that I had done that. And um, I was working for a, uh, I was a sales manager for a newspaper. And there in there was three $100 bills. I couldn't believe it. So that was just one. Another one is that I was in New York with my brother, Gene. And we were down to, uh, we went uh, down to look at the uh, terrible 9-11 thing, the, the memorial. And we went and we were down looking at different stuff. And I, we were taking the train from, we'd go from Manhattan to go to Pennsylvania Station to get on the train to take us to where we were going. And I left my purse in, a car, in, in the cab and it had everything. It had my money, it had everything. And, and, and on 6th Avenue in New York, it, you've got hundreds of cabs. And so this cab pulled away and I couldn't, I, I tried to see which one was it and I couldn't find it. And my brother said, Jan, what are you going to do? You've lost your purse. We don't even have a ticket to get on the train. And I said, well, I said, only one thing I know how to do. Let's pray. So there, right across from Times Square uh, and everything, we're just standing there in the street and I'm holding his hands and we're praying. And I said, God, please help me. So nothing was happening. And I said, I need to find that purse. So we went into the station and I saw a bunch of people. And I said, can I, because I didn't even have a phone. I couldn't do this. I said, can I borrow your phone? I want to call the cab. And they couldn't get through to the cabs. Nothing was happening. And then I finally made another call and I did get through. And I called my phone. And it was a man answered. His name was Paul. And he said, I have your purse. I said, really? I said, I'm in a restaurant down on Third Avenue. And here's the address. And I will wait here until you get here if you can come right now. I said, right now. I'm coming right now. I'm finding here. We're going to get in there. Got in the cab. 
drove to this restaurant. Can you imagine what the name of that restaurant was? The Miracle Grill. Wow. I mean, how many times could you lose your in New York, find it the same day, and then Paul is like disappeared. So it must have been an angel. I have no idea. Never met Paul. Isn't that amazing? Wow, Jan, that is amazing. And I know you've got many more stories to share with us, which we'll hear in our next episode. You know, Jan's last story reminds me of the widow of Zarephath. She lived in Sidon during the time of a great famine, and she and her son had just enough oil and flour for one more meal than they expected to die. But God, God sent Elijah to that widow and performed a miracle of multiplying the oil and the flour so they had enough to live on until the famine was over. Now, Jan's predicament wasn't quite as dire, but still, God intervened in a seemingly impossible situation, and he took care of her. God is quick to respond to those who call out to him. Zephaniah 3.17 in the NIV says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The Lord delights in you, dear friend. No matter what you've been through or where you've come from, God loves you and desires so much for you to have a loving and vibrant relationship with him. He wants to sing songs of deliverance over you and provide you with all you need as a loving parent provides for their children. John 1.12 tells us that if we receive Jesus and we believe in his name, God gives us the right to become his children. And he will take care of you just like he takes care of Jan and me and every other child of his. Let me take a moment and pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you that through belief in your son, Jesus, we are born again and we become your children, joint heirs with Jesus. And we get to share in all your promises and know we now live eternally with you in heaven. Because I'm your child, I come boldly to you, Lord, and ask that you bless my listening friends with healing and provision and guidance, and most of all, a deeper revelation of who you are. Give them joy in the journey and let them experience your amazing love through miraculous interventions on their behalf, even this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. Listen to the next Her God Story episode for the rest of Jan's story. I can tell you it's amazing, and you will be inspired to dream big dreams with God. Check out our show notes at hergodstory.org for scriptures, links, and other information. And sign up there for our emails, and then you'll get a six-week devotional book that you can download for free on Women of the Bible. Or you might want to purchase the 12-week devotional on Women of the Bible for just $12, knowing that all the proceeds will go to our Widow and Orphan Fund. We'd love to pray with you on our 24-7 prayer and text line. Give us a call or text anytime at 855-459-CARE or email us at prayer at somebodycares.org. And now, dear friends, I bless you from Psalm 18, verses 18 and 19. May the Lord support you and bring you into a spacious place. May he rescue you because he delights in you. And may he reward you from his great love. Her God Story is a ministry of Somebody Cares America and International. To find out more about or support the ministry, go to somebodycares.org.